Hey, welcome to the Scrum, WGBH's politics podcast. I'm Adam Riley with Peter Kansas. Hey, Peter. Hey, Adam. In this episode, you're going to hear a conversation Peter had with Kristen Johnson. She is a Boston Public Schools parent and activist who blogs at bostonpoliticaleducation.com, tweets under the handle at Chrissy Cabbage, and is a founding member of the Boston Coalition of Education Equity, which is trying to speed up action on what it considers an equity crisis in Boston's public schools. But first, Peter, I got to get your take on the tension that has been bubbling up between the Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders campaigns over the past couple of days. It started, as you know, with a political report that the Sanders campaign has been warning voters that Warren's appeal is limited to the affluent and well-educated. It ended, at least for the moment, with that awkward-looking exchange following Tuesday night's Democratic debate in Iowa. Can we say now that the detente that held for months between Warren and Sanders is no more? Yes, we can. Uh, The dispute is real. Um, Look, to understand that I'm going to invoke the the dark prince of political theory, Carl Schmitt. Um, who said, you know, the essence of politics is the, um, the relationship between friends and enemies. Um, and that's what this is about. Both of these people, senators, um, certified lefties, very smart people, could be colleagues in the Senate and did a remarkable job serving their own self-interest being colleagues up until this point in the campaign. Now the road has diverged. Someone wants to be a winner. And uh, I don't know whether it's, I I suppose, be melodramatic. There'll be a fight to the death. Um, It's real. Were you losing it like I was watching the debate when the moderator, uh, Abby Phillip, first asked Sanders about this these comments he allegedly made to the effect that a woman can't win in this private conversation he had with uh, with Warren back in 2018. He reiterated uh, his claim that he did not, in fact, say that. And then Abby Phillip turned to Elizabeth Warren and said, effectively, what was your response when Senator Sanders told you a woman couldn't win? I was apoplectic because he had just rejected the characterization first reported by CNN And I felt like the obvious follow-up question there was, okay, Senator Warren, you've heard Bernie Sanders deny that that conversation took place. What's your account? Maybe I'm an outlier here, but I was was really agitated. I I don't think you're an outlier. Uh, The Nation magazine had a piece um, that uh, basically said they thought CNN, uh, it's Jeet here, by the way, said that uh, CNN was unfair to to uh, Sanders, and um, it was. And, um, you know, the, 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 the moderator is a print reporter. I hold the producers responsible. You and I know. Oh, that's a good point. You and I know how broadcast works. At that level, the, the producers like the editor. Um, uh, interestingly enough, I think this boomerang to Bernie's benefit. Not necessarily among everyone. Um, You know, talking to one of our colleagues before we sat down to record this, she was saying that she's struck by how all the Warren people think Warren won and all the Bernie people think Bernie won. I'll tell you why I think Bernie won the debate, um, which surprises me 
in, in some ways. Um, Scott Lehigh asked me on Twitter. I commented on something. He said, who, who did you see? And given the momentum that Bernie Sanders has at the moment, that um, frisson of uh, disgruntlement that his growing number of supporters has, I, I think, gives him a boost. You know, that's a terrific point because his campaign, I, I think, is fueled this time around, just like last time, by this conviction that uh, he is not being given the respect he deserves. The mainstream, broadly speaking, is out to get him. That sense of grievance is also a Yeah, fuel. and what's interesting is that Elizabeth Warren is trying to appear to be more aggrieved than Bernie. Um, by the way, she had a good performance. You know, she was the high-energy candidate in a very conservative debate. Let's not forget the Iowa caucuses are less than three weeks away. No one wants to blow it. Uh, they have plenty of opportunities to be negative in Iowa. Do you think that we've reached a point where we're now going to see the candidates themselves, rather than their surrogates, launching aggressive attacks against each other? Might we see, for example, Bernie Sanders saying, you know, Elizabeth, I'm glad you got to where you did on health care, but we both know that you were following my lead. Or Elizabeth Warren accusing Bernie Sanders of not having detailed enough plans or of, you know, playing fast and loose with the truth to harken back to this private conversation, the contents of which is still contested. Are they going to go at each other directly? I don't know. I mean, um, I sort of hope they do. Me too. Um, get Get it out there. Um, listen, whether they do or not, in, in that cynical old reporter Peter talking when he says that, um, Joe Biden's the beneficiary of this, and he's beneficiary of it in a way that can be documented. Um, the way the Iowa caucus works is, you know, you it's sort of like voting in Cambridge. Yeah, you know, yeah. you get to pick you first, and then if they don't make 15%, you get a second, third. Biden is the number two choice of very many Bernie and very many Warren supporters. Um, That's a terrific point that I hadn't thought of. And now all of a sudden, it's harder to sell a, a Bernie bro on Warren or vice versa. Yeah, and I'll tell you, the Bernie bros will have always been down on um, Warren. And I have to say, Bernie himself is not misogynistic. He's married to a very strong woman. Um, I, I think she'd hit him over the head with a frying pan if she thought he was a misogynist. Um, however, the Bernie bros have always have it out for Elizabeth Warren in a way that I, I think um, is A, not fair, and B, ungentlemanly, if I can introduce a 19th century concept. But the sort of campaign Warren is running lends itself to this, and here's why. Um, when I saw her at... Um, at Faneuil Hall, right? Uh, New Year's uh, Eve speech. Oh, I'm sorry, uh, Old South, uh, Old, uh, Old South, Old Meeting, South House. Meeting House. I, I remember thinking to myself, you know, great crowd. She was terrific. I said, but it, it's like she has all these micro um, groups that she's always playing to. Um, and that's a fine strategy. Um, and I saw it again last night when she was talking about um, uh, the trans community and... Um, women of color in certain mm -hmm. she, she slices the constituencies very thin. Um, again, it's fine. 
Uh, it relies ultimately heavily on identity, which is something that rubs Bernie the wrong way. That That's a fair tactic. But you were saying there's a downside to it. There's a downside to it because you can... <sighs> Bernie's making a broader appeal. She's making a broad appeal, but it's made up of many Legos. Bernie's got one big honking two-by-four out there. All right. On to Peter's conversation with Kristen Johnson, who might be better known by that Twitter handle I mentioned earlier, at Chrissy Cabbage. The catalyst for their chat about the present and future of the Boston Public Schools was Mayor Marty Walsh's recent State of the City speech, in which, among other things, Walsh said... This Over the next three years, we'll provide $100 million in new revenue for direct classroom funding. This level of planned new investment over and above the cost increases has never been done before. It will reach every school and be carefully targeted so every dollar makes a difference. We'll begin with intense supports for underperforming schools so we can become one great district. And I want to make a personal appeal to the parents and guardians of children in Boston. Visit the Boston Public Schools in your neighborhood. You will find a caring, diverse, high-achieving community. We want your family to be part of the BPS community because we believe in all our schools. Kristen, welcome to the Scrum. Just a, a quick personal point. Um, Kristen and I have crossed swords over the years on and off on Twitter. Uh, we are sometimes on opposite sides of the fence in terms of education, but... Um, both being parents who have kids in the system, or I had, mine just left, and I think we share a common goal and hoping for the best, but that little personal precede aside, I noted with interest that a number of people, perhaps the biggest headline being um, uh, City Councilor Campbell, were either less than impressed by what Mayor Walsh said um, and his pledge of $100 million over three years. Um, they, they range from being less than impressed to somewhat hostile. Could you explain that to me? Yes, I'd be happy to. First of all, thank you for having me on the Scrum. It's like a long-time dream of mine. <laughs> but um, No, thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, I think a lot of us had that um, reluctance, and um, his plan is a little short on details, and um, I share Councillor Campbell's um, sadness that he hasn't been able to address the systemic inequality that persists in BPS, and I think that is part of um, her reluctance with his plan. Um, when you look into the details, um, over his six years as mayor, each year he's given an average of $39.3 million increase, or 3.8%, and so an additional $33 million annually is... Um, on par with that, if not a little bit less. So uh, I'm very interested to see what the budget number is going to look like when they are presented to the school committee on February 4th. The, let me be academic and ask you to sort of define your terms or term when you talk about systematic inequality, um, just so all the listeners understand exactly what you're talking about. Sure. Um, just over um, Mayor Walsh's tenure, we've seen budget cuts uh, year after year. So even though that the budget number overall will go up, we'll see deficits at schools on the school level, um, such that teachers are cut, um, music teachers or art teachers or support specialists. And um, 
it's the system is called weighted student funding, and I won't get us too much into the weeds, but um, as kids move through the academic ecosystem in Boston, um, there are winning schools and losing schools just based on the demographic pattern shifts um, in our schools. In other words, the dollars follow the students. Exactly. If Mayor Walsh was going to dedicate the first installment of his $100 million, the 33, the first $33 million installment, whether it's enough or not enough, what would you like to see that $33 million applied to? Um, we definitely want to see every school have a foundation of quality. So uh, right now we have no consistency of quality among our schools. So we need to ask what is a quality education in our city? Does it include music? Does it include art? Does it include um, history? So right now, our schools are so variable. You can go to one school and get uh, Japanese and dance and go to another school and get only you know science and English. So um, I think we need to flip the question to find what is a quality education in this world-class city and then fund that appropriately. Um. By the way, I'm playing devil's advocate here. The Boston Public Schools, Boston spends, you know, more than a billion dollars a year. Um, that's a lot of money. I I'm not sure as a taxpayer and as a parent who until a year ago had my last kid in the school system, I'm not sure we're getting value for the dollar, but that's, I suppose, beside the point. Um, in a macro sense, how do we deal with the problems you see? Yeah, that's uh, an interesting question. So first of all, we are 31st in the Commonwealth for, for per-pupil school spending. So there's 30 other um, cities and towns that spend more than Boston, and we educate arguably the most uh, complex learners with the highest needs um, in the state. And it's most definitely worth noting that at least 10% of our budget is um, compulsory transportation costs, which are not only for all of Boston public school students, but also um, charter school, parochial school students, out-of-district placements. Um, so a great deal of that um, per-pupil spending is going to children not even within the district. And so um, it's included in our per-pupil spending but it, the money is really going elsewhere. So would you just as soon have stop transporting Catholic school kids, private school kids, charter school kids, uh, Medco kids? Uh, no, I'm not suggesting that at all. I'm just suggesting that we talk about the math differently, um, that we not compare apples to oranges when we're talking about per, pure pupil spending. Um, so those uh, residents are taxpayers in Boston. They have a right to the transportation. It's state law um, that they get transportation. But um, I just I get asked that it, we not do this disingenuous, um, take you know one billion and divide it by fifty four thousand because it's much more complicated than that. Okay. No. And, and by the way, I agree a hundred percent that it is. I, I'm just trying to use a few bright colors in broad strokes to in an attempt to make this understandable. Uh, let me share a thought. I think one reason the mayor is having so much, has so much pushback on education is he's micromanaged too much. Yes. He's personally become too identified with it. And I think that stems from um, 
the the botched search for the the first superintendent. Um, um, I'm not sure how things will work out with the new superintendent. Do you have any initial impressions about her? Yeah, I have a lot of optimism about Dr. Caselius because she um, thinks in the same terms that we do about uh, equity and um, you know, perhaps ending standardized testing. I, I really like her and trust her a lot. I think why the mayor has lost the trust of uh, the parent community is our appointed school committee, which is not responsive to um, any wishes that any of us have expressed to them. So I think that's where the distrust um, stems from right now. Is it the, the Mahdi Wall School Committee any less responsive than the Tom Menino School Committee? Uh, that's a good question. I, I didn't, you know, uh, my oldest is 13, so I did, wasn't really following um, education politics that far back. That's a, um, a great okay. question. But um, just even over the course of his own tenure, uh, the school committee has become less and less responsive. And now I'd even per se say a bit hostile <laughs> to um, parent uh, parents' needs. Um, so, for example, the closing of the West Roxbury Education Complex. Um, parents came out in numbers to try to save their school, and um, it didn't help at all. Well, um, it, it, it's funny. I'm, I'm, uh, my pause and my sigh there is my impression, my understanding is that the school committee is really little more than an agent of the mayor. I, I do think that the closing of West Roxbury High was difficult, but I think a, 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 a necessary move. As sympathetic as I am to the assertions that we're not spending enough in the school, where is additional money going to come from? I mean, I, I use this $1.1 billion as a, a figure, as a, 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 a broad stroke. It's going to be awfully hard to get more money than that. Or do you think it's a question of how the money is apportioned within that pool? Yes, I think it's both. Um, I think, for example, I, don't, I just don't think the way that we're allocating money right now is equitable because uh, many schools, my own child's included, they fundraise, um, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars to make for make up for funding shortfalls but not every school can do that so for instance you know my daughter's school in Jamaica Plain can fundraise $50,000 a year the King and uh, Grove Hall doesn't have a robust parent community to deliver the funds so so first of all we need to do work on the equity um, within fundraising uh, family fundraising. Yeah, I mean, that that's a good point. But the fact is, I mean, by the way, I'm not defending the present system, but the Boston public schools reflect a populated by largely the poorest people in the city. Um, and it's a real problem. I mean, Boston needs to be spending more, I think. But I don't know where the money's going to come from. Um, th that's why I'm so torn about it. Yeah, Um Raising revenue is always a great question. Um, I think there's um, wasted money in the pilot program. Um, I think we could access more revenue uh, from uh, the housing and development that's happening in our city. And then also, uh, just as a um, critical friend of the system, I think there needs to be a lot better asset management in Boston Public Schools. Um, 
lot better overseeing of contracts, um, you know, transportation contract is one of them, technology. Um, so it's uh, it's a complicated question, but um, the system we have right now is not serving all of our kids equitably. Uh, let me go back to the school committee, though. Last year it was Councillor uh, Anissa Rasabi george made a big deal about saying that um, she was going to lead an effort to see how the school committee might be adjusted. And she was very quick to point out, say, look, maybe what we have is fine. Maybe we should have some mix of elected and appointed. Uh, maybe there are other alternatives. Nothing ever came of that. What happened? No, there was one single hearing and um, just sort of the same old characters got trotted out um, to talk about the issue. And then it, it just sort of died um, died on the vine. And uh, so that's why we, as the Boston Coalition of Education Equity, are um, starting to ask this question and starting to ask the new city councilors uh, their opinion on this. And uh, now a majority of them support a reformulation of the school committee. Um, a majority of them support some portion elected. So we're optimistic that we can get the ball rolling again. Um, yeah, I mean, I was... I, I took her at face value, but in retrospect, it seems like this is that the uh, timing was very convenient. Um, Asabi George made this grand gesture at a time when uh, there was a lot of heat being raised by parents who objected to the new school start times. And it seemed like a convenient way to uh, distract attention. But I have noticed since then um, very much growing discussion among people saying, hmm, maybe it's time to return to an elected school committee. Yeah, I, I think it is. And even um, Hubie Jones, who is one of the architects of the appointed school committee, um, said at the closing of the whole um, movement to change it to appointed that this may be a temporary measure um, until such time that Boston's ready to go back. And um, we assert that Boston is ready to go back. We have, um, you know, incredible engaged voters right now who've put Ayanna Presley in Washington and Rachel Rollins in the district attorney's office. Uh, we feel that now is the time to return the direct representation back to the residents of Boston. Yeah. See, I remember the bad old days <laughs> of the bad old Boston School Committee, yeah. um, the, the blatantly racist school committee um, that shortchanged uh, minority districts, specifically black districts, gave less money per pupil. Um, and this is, of course, what led to the court audit desegregation and uh, which was implemented by uh, forced busing. Um, there were that old school committee was a gang of crooks and racists, um, or populated by some crooks and racists, to be fair. Then I also remember, and you, you are an expert on the transition from the bad old days to the brave new world, we'll yes, call it. Yeah. Um, then there's what I call the Nucci years. I mean, the sort of in between, um, could you 
recount how we got to where we are now. Sure, I would. And like why to... we should change back. Sure. I, so this was so fascinating to me. I had this question: how How did we get here? And I went deeply down a ra- rabbit hole to find out. And to make a long story short, basically during the battle days, we had five members elected at large, and at the time it was nearly impossible for um, anyone of color to break through in this at-large system. And finally, in I think it was 1977, John D. O'Brien was the first African-American to get elected. Many joke it's because he had an Irish last name that he um, was even (laughs) able to accomplish that because Mel King himself ran several times and couldn't win. And then in 1983, the uh, board changed from five elected at-large to nine elected by a district and four at large, sort of the same formulation we have at the city council. The city council changed at the same time. And at that point, we had a quite a diverse um, school committee. So we're going into the Nucci era that you just referenced. And they selected the first African-American superintendent, Laval Wilson, and the second, Lois Harrison Jones. So um, I guess the biggest problem with that school committee of that era was that a 13-member body was very slow and long-winded at making decisions, a point which frustrated Ray Flynn. And so Ray Flynn, at the time, had a lot of ties with the business community, the vault, the Boston Municipal Research Bureau, who were all advocating for um, site-based school management, autonomous schools, um, you know, closing schools. And they had an agenda that our elected school committee was not sticking to and so uh, long story short, we ended with the appointed committee. So, um, now, wasn't Menino instrumental in really closing the deal? It began under Ray Flynn, but wasn't it Menino who sort of made it happen? It did. Um, yeah, he was a um, city councilor at large at the time. And um, yeah, it, it's an interesting story. In 1989, there was the ballot referendum that only passed... Um, by razor-thin margin, by residents uh, just voting 51 to 49 to change to appointed. But then they, um, to get the Home Rule petition changed took about another um, three years. And Menino was part of the council that finally um, helped seal the deal. Okay. Let's close by talking about the transportation contracts. Um, you're, You're talking about the actual busing of our kids. Yes. And you're saying that it's you're suggesting, I think, that it's not being done in uh, an efficient and cost-effective way. Am I correct? Yes. Um, I, I don't know the answer to that question, but I've, um, having served on ta- task force within the district, I've seen that it's very hard to uh, make changes such as changing school start times um, because we're shackled by um, our transportation contract. And within BPS, what I observed is that sometimes the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing. And uh, decisions are made about uh, transportation contracts that aren't necessarily the best for kids. Um, So, you know, can we get our high school start times later, as the data shows would be better? Um, You know, no, we can't because we're bound by certain transportation contracts. So um, I think just uh, giving those contracts more thoughtfully, holistically, um, you know, with student outcomes um, central in the decision making is something that's critical. But why can't the terms of those contracts be renegotiated? 
that's a great question, and I hope Dr. Caselius is working on that one. Okay. <laughs> we'll end on that hopeful note. Kristen Johnson, I'd like to thank you very much, especially for putting your uh, expertise at our service. Um, good luck in your efforts to reform the school system and the uh, Boston School Committee. Thank you for having me, Peter. So, Peter, I got the impression listening to your conversation with Kristen that she is clearly critical of the system, but she doesn't want to go too far. It seems like she doesn't want to burn her bridges with maybe people in the administration who'd be inclined to give her a sympathetic hearing. Am I right about that? I think so. Um, uh, Kristen is very critical of the way things are, but um, like most Boston activists, she is a political animal. Um, I think the larger takeaway here is that the Boston public schools are on the verge of being repoliticized in a way they haven't been for years. Um, maybe I'm wrong to say on the verge. Um, it, it's interesting. Um, there's, there's a figure I often look at. There are about 10,000 kids who would be eligible for the Boston public schools who are in charter schools. And then there are about 33 to 3,500 kids going to Metco. So let's just round that out. There are 13,000 families or kids who have voted with their feet and rejected the Boston public schools. You know, for a system of 55,000, roughly, that's a lot. Um, I, I think the Boston public schools could become a political flashpoint in the upcoming mayor's race. Follow-up question to that. I know that the line of thinking going way back to when you were covering BPS and the, the battles over court-ordered uh, desegregation, the conventional wisdom seemed to me to be that the politicization of the schools was wrong and destructive. And that's why we ended up with the governance structure that we currently have. Do you anticipate repoliticization that could actually be beneficial for the educational end product as you look ahead? Um, perhaps. Listen, the city is so different today. You know, we have um, a majority-minority system. You have a lot of critics of the system, I think like Councillor Campbell, who very conveniently forget that the Boston public schools are predominantly um, minority students. And they're trying to say that white students are getting a, a, a better shake. In some cases, they are, but it, it, it's, there's the issue of economic class. Um, the Boston public schools serve a largely poor and disenfranchised population. Um, You've got the majority of the city's voters who are of color or are poorer. Um, where that goes, I don't know, but it, it's not the old days of a majority white electorate choosing racists. Reintroducing politics into the school system is not particularly bad. I, frankly, have a, a rather dim view in the long run. I, I think that in municipal politics in Boston, small vocal minorities, uh, whatever their hue, whatever their ideology, 
tend to dominate the conversation. Um, and I think that the reformers might be surprised at how ultimately conservative the Boston voters are, no matter what their color. And that is going to do it for another installment of The Scrum. Thanks to Kristen Johnson, a.k.a. at Chrissy Cabbage, for making time to talk with us. And as always, thanks to you for listening. Please subscribe to The Scrum if you haven't already and rate us while you're at it. Also, talk back to us if you're so inclined. You can email us at scrum at wgbh.org or find us on Twitter. I'm at Riley Adam. And Peter, your handle again? At Kadzis. Um, hey, before we go, Adam, let me put a plug in. I would really recommend, uh, if you didn't see them, to read David Bernstein's analysis of the debate and Dan Kennedy's media take. They're um, sort of like flip sides of the same coin. Our producer is Zoe Matthews. Our engineer for this episode was Dave Goodman. We get crucial production help from him, John Parker, Andrew Masawa, and Gary Mott. I'm Adam Riley. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News.